0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Great to see you today. My name is Otto Ramos. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my great privilege to greet you to worship today. Welcome to those of you joining us online. If this is one of your first times joining us this morning, may we extend a very special welcome to you. And if you'd like to learn more about who we are, you know, you can do that. You can communicate with us. Uh, you can take one of those communication cards that you can find on the seat back in front of you and fill that out. And if you have some free time afterwards, Come see me at the Welcome Center. We have a free gift for you for joining us uh, this morning. For those of you joining us online, go to our website at vlchurch.com and click on the banner there that says, Are You New Here? Fill out the form that pops up on the screen. That'll come straight to me, and I will connect with you sometime this week. But indeed, thank you for joining us as well. I do have a few announcements for you this morning, Uh, the first of which is just a reminder about the fact that we are having uh, groups known as Bible and Barbecue this summer, so, we gather once a month at these various Bible and barbecue events, and we do indeed study God's Word. Some will be just talking about the amazing teachings that Pastor Matt will be delivering this summer on the book of Romans, and uh, we'll also be eating some food together. And it's very tasty food, all of it's very low fat and great for the abdominal muscles. But, uh, you know, I'm kidding. But nonetheless, we hope that you'll join us at one of these events. They they happen, as I said, once a month. And to find out more details about where and when and all things like that, once again, you can go to our website at vlchurch.com and click on the banner that you see on the screen that says Bible and Barbecue and check it out, and we'd hope to see you there. Uh, Last but not least, I want to make mention of the fact that we are indeed going to celebrate our graduates this year. It's a little later Uh, We want to make sure that we include everyone, so it's going to be here in a few weeks, Sunday, June 25th. And so if you know someone or if you are someone who has graduated from high school, college, or graduate school, or some type of professional school, I'm trying to get all the schools in there, uh, please let us know. We'd like to honor you and celebrate you. This is an important milestone in your life, and we want to pray for you on graduation Sunday here at Victory Life Church. That will happen June 25th which is two weeks from today. if you could just call the church office and let us know that you are a graduate, we'd like to honor you and gift you and pray for you on that particular Sunday in two weeks. Well that's all I have this morning in the way of announcements. if you've come to worship the Lord Jesus with your ties and offerings, you likely know what to do and how you can do that. you can give online you can give via text or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning but indeed thank you for worshiping the Lord Jesus uh, with your ties and offerings today. I ask you to stand this morning, and as you do so, uh, let's bow for a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Father God, come into this place today and fill our hearts with your presence. May you build up the truth about who you really are to each and every person in this place. May each person here today know that which what your word says. In Lamentations, where it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. May we connect with you knowing that truth, that your love for us never goes away. Some may come this morning feeling very unlovable, very unlikable, uh, like they need an extra measure of your grace and mercy because of perhaps maybe bad decisions, wrong choices and missteps this week. I pray that you break through barriers and break through doubts and allow us to connect with you in a very deep way as we worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: I couldn't have said it better. Our identity is not in what we've done this week, but our identity is in Christ. So let's just worship him this morning. see him again with your song. Let's invite him now. Flood our thoughts, Lord.
0: Flood our
1: thoughts with wonder and awe. Give us a greater glimpse of a never-changing God. Cause all we want and all we is found in you. Is found in you, Jesus. Every victory is found in you. Is found in you. Oh, 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 oh. oh, 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 oh. So open wide, our hearts now to yours. Every fear bows in His love. Every fear. Bow down to your love. We would see you, Lord. That we would see like never before. Give us a greater glimpse of a never-changing God. Hey, yeah. Cause all we want and all we need is found in you, is found in It's found in you, it's found in you oh yeah Cause all we want and all we need is found in you it's found in you Jesus every victory is found in you it's found in you oh oh found in you is found in up in this place, if we're truly found in him, then no matter what we face today, no matter what we go through, we don't have to fear it, because we're found in his love. Let's sing this together. When darkness tries to roll over my bones, when sorrow comes to steal the joy I own, when brokenness and pain is all I know, no, I won't be shaken. No, I won't be shaken. Let's declare this together. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My shame no longer has a place to hide For I am not a captive to the lies And I'm not afraid to leave my past behind No, I won't be shaken No, I won't be shaken No, cause my fear. A grave, do you believe this? Oh, this resurrection power that can save this power in your name, power in your name, Jesus. This power that can break off every chain, this power that can empty out a grave. There's resurrection power that can save it's power in your name power in your name Cause my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love my fear doesn't I am standing in your love. I am standing on the rock, my firm foundation, my firm foundation. Oh, I am standing on the rock. For I Oh, I am standing on the rock, my firm foundation, my firm foundation. Amen. Jesus, you are the rock. You are our firm foundation today. We trust in you and we believe in you. This morning, I was telling the worship team, I said, this morning is about our identity being in Christ. I've shared that with you as well. Because I heard, this was recent, Pastor Peter told us in a staff meeting uh, one day, he said, a lot of times we come into church and and we are always bringing in the baggage of the world or whatever, whatever we've done at work or whatever we've done with our families that week. And we feel like that's what defines us. But he said he had somebody tell him once, before he gets ready to minister, before he gets ready to go into the Lord's throne room, he says to himself, I am not what I do. I am not my hobbies. I am not what happened this week. But I am found in you, Jesus. And when I stand in the love of Christ, I don't have to fear anything. I don't have to fear the past because I have forgiveness. When I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. I don't have to fear the future because I know I have the Spirit leading me and going before me. When we allow ourselves to be identified in Christ and not in the things we do or the things we've done. We can walk in his purpose and his plan for our life, and we can see his goodness surrounding us. So the encouragement to you this morning is to not allow yourself to be found in the things of this world, but to be found in Christ. And then, as we sing this next song, all will be well with your soul. E the clouds.
2: Jesus, all that you have done, all that you are, all that you're going to do, allows us to say that it is well with our soul. Lord, you told us that we would have troubles in this world, but then you said, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. So, Lord, we place ourselves directly in the hand of the overcomer, directly in the hand of the glorious and victorious Christ and ask that every trouble would be cast upon you, that every fear would be laid at the foot of the cross, that every feeling of estrangement would be erased by your love for us, that we would be reminded today that you have overcome the world and therefore there is nothing to fear when we are found in you. Not life, not sin, not death. Nothing to fear when we are found in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being a Savior worth knowing and a Savior worth serving. And as we go into your word today to see your greatness for all that you've done, Lord, I pray that further and further in ever-emanating circles, we'd place ourselves into your care, into your hand, and into your plan. We ask these things as a body of believers today in Christ Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Well, welcome once again to Victory Life Church. This morning, I'm Pastor Matt, and it's my great pleasure to get to share with you from the Word of God. But just some of you, some of you aren't staying. So young disciples... You may be dismissed at this time to go on down the hall and uh, continue to learn about the fruit of the Spirit. I learned years ago that the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. The fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. The fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. So you might as well hear it. If you're a coconut, how's that one go, Sienna? No? If you're a coconut, you can't be a fruit of the Spirit. But you've got to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You're welcome. Why don't you turn to the book of Romans? Be better for all of us. So, we're in our second week in the book of Romans. We're being we're talking this summer about how good, how great, how wonderful the gospel is and just the awe that we should stand in when we look at the gospel in all of its fullness, the good news about what Jesus has done. We talked last week about the fact that the apostle Paul had great big plans. He wanted to get to Spain via Rome, so he was going to go home to Jerusalem, then he was going to go off to Rome, and then hopefully off to Spain, if God should allow. And so he was writing a book that we know as Romans to define and explain his gospel. But this book that we have really is the great explainer, the great... um, theological treatise on what we believe and so what we're trying to do this summer as we study the book of Romans is not just look at it from an educational standpoint not only look at it from a theological standpoint but ask ourselves each and every week how might I convey this to someone who needs to know the truth of the scriptures not not just let's just learn theology for theology's sake but how might I convey each and every truth that we learn each and every week to someone who does not yet know Christ and that's gonna be our focus this summer At spring break of this year, I had a major victory that I've wanted to tell you about for some time. It was one of the most fabulous victories of my life. My kids and I, my wife came too, uh, my family and I uh, went to uh, Washington, D.C., I I might have mentioned this to you, for spring break, but I kind of had my own agenda for that trip to Washington, D.C., because I am a Civil War nerd, a nerd who enjoys learning all about the politics, the history, the battles, the, 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 the intrigue of what happened when this nation fought against itself. And, and I happen to know that around Washington, D.C., there are some splendid, fabulously preserved battlefields. Now, I know some of you right now are ready to fall asleep at the very mention of the Civil War and its battlefields. And most people would be, most normal people. But I am not a normal person. And therefore, I tell my kids, yeah, we're going to D.C., we're going to see the Capitol, we're going to see the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Monument, the National Archives, we're going to see all of it. But I knew that we were going to go to Bull Run, too. And so about the third morning of vacation, we got to the battlefield at Bull Run. There happened to be two battles that were fought there. You might know it as the Battle of Manassas. And we spent the morning there. I walked my kids up this hill and up that hill, and I described how... All the tactics and the strategy to get these these armies onto the field. And this was the biggest battle yet fought in the Western Hemisphere. And I explained why that big statue of Stonewall Jackson was there and how he rallied the troops against the onslaught of the Union soldiers. And we walked up a hill that Fitz John Porter's corps, uh, charged up at the Second Battle of Bull Run. We were out of breath when we got to the top. So we spent the morning there, and I was telling the story, and I was talking with passion and awe about everything that I knew having to do with the battlefield. And it got to be about and I said to my kids alright kids, why don't we head on into Manassas we'll get some lunch and then it's up to you do you want to head back into this downtown DC or would you like to stay on the battlefield for the rest of the day and they said dad, this is cool we'd like to stay here <laughs> victory I took what might be hard to understand, what might be a little bit in their minds boring, what might be something that would not be fun for kids, and everybody, five kids, all under the age of 13, was like, let's stick around here and look at more monuments and talk about more of the story. Oh, and to just stroke my pride a little bit, they said, but we don't want to do any more tours with the tour guides. We want you to be our tour guide. (laughs) It's all true, isn't it, Sienna? It's all true. It's always good to have one kid in first service to verify when stories seem unbelievable. (laughs) But it was true. Now, we didn't get there in a vacuum. I didn't describe the Civil War as if I was asking them if they'd like another piece of meatloaf, right? No, I, I... I took some time to open some great picture books before we got there. I I told the story of the Battle of Bull Run as we're driving down out of the city that morning. I'm walking up the hillside talking with passion and awe about the story that I've been so ready to tell. See, it didn't happen in a vacuum. If If I had just described the Civil War to them like this, would you like another piece of meatloaf? It would not have in any way inspired them. But when someone who is passionate and awe-filled in a topic shares it with you with their passion and awe, there is a much higher probability that someone else will acquire that awe, that they will think of it as great. Now, uh, the Civil War and the study of the Civil War is a nothing burger. Like, if my kids do or do not like studying the Civil War, it means nothing in the long run of life. But what we do here every Sunday morning is not study a nothing burger. We study the word of God. And and we have someone who has written down one of the most powerful books in history describing just how great the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Just how awesome it is. And as we get into our second sermon on Romans today, we're going to see just how awe-inspiring and awesome and great Paul saw the gospel. He, he saw it as amazing, and he wants to convey how amazing he sees it. It's not just another slice of meatloaf. It's fabulous. It's awesome. It's incredible. And that's why he writes, and that's why he shares, and that's why he goes on these missionary journeys. And today, we're going to find ourselves in what many scholars believe is the dead center of the thesis. Verse 16 and 17 is like the thesis statement of the entire book of Romans, but to kind of place it in its context, we're going to read 13 through 17 and see if we can leave today with just an ounce of the same awe, just just a couple of, of, of specks of the same greatness that, that Paul saw in the gospel, because if we can see the gospel for what it is great, there's going to be a higher probability that we want to convey it, and we want to convey it with passion. We want to convey it in his greatness. And that's what Paul's so excited about when he thinks about getting to Rome. All right, let's read about five verses here this morning. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to move all our way down through 17. We're going to spend most of our time in 16 and 17 here, but let's never take things out of context. Let's look at these five verses, verse 13 and following. Paul says to the church in Rome, who he has not yet met, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, "...but thus far I have been prevented, in order, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." Verse 16, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that, that, the phrase in there that just catches you, that just captures you, and has captured people for 2,000 years, is Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I have to ask you, is telling people about Jesus a source of shame? Or is it a source of excitement? See, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's, he's really not saying, well, I want to tell people, but it's kind of embarrassing, and so I try even though it's embarrassing. No, he, he's, he's going the opposite direction with this. When you read what he's saying here, he's not saying he would most likely be predisposed to being ashamed of the gospel. He's saying the gospel is incredible. If I were to look at you, and let's say we're all going to go play, ah, not all of us, just some of us, we're going to go play at the annual picnic a kickball game against Pastor Otto's team, and you're going to be on my team. Now, if it's Pastor Otto's team, you're, you're, you're assured a loss. If you're on my team, you're assured a victory. And if I looked at you, and I said to you as my teammates, We are not gonna lose. Would that be meant to inspire you or make you wonder if we're gonna win? No, it's meant to inspire you. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's really talking about how great it is. Look at the context around it. He's not like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though I'm predisposed to be. No, he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is great. And he really has embedded here three reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel, but I think it's better to say three reasons why the gospel is great. That's what he's getting at here in this passage. So the first thing I want you to notice here, and remember, we're going to spend most of our time in 16 and 17, but I wanted to read the previous verses for context. The first thing I want to make mention of here is what he says in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul says the gospel delivers salvation. It isn't salvation. It delivers the salvation. I know one of my favorite things to see when I'm turning onto my street, when I get home in the afternoon, is that bluish gray truck. Do you know the one I'm talking about? It's the one that packages come out of, where they put them on your stoop or your, or your porch, and you think to yourself, what did I order this week? I don't even remember. Remember? And and you get excited to see that bluish-gray truck, right? They say that that bluish-gray truck delivers happiness. I'm inclined to agree. Because I have ordered what's coming out of that bluish-gray truck. When I am sitting and and, and I see that delivery person coming out of that bluish-gray truck, and the reason I say bluish-gray is because I I talked to people about this yesterday. There was a great big fight over whether it's blue or gray. So we're calling it the bluish-gray truck. You know the one I mean. They deliver something to you that you want And you're excited about that, right? You're excited about that. Well, the gospel is the great bluish-gray truck of history, except it doesn't deliver what you want. It delivers what you most desperately need. Like, you ever got that Christmas gift, and you're like, what is this? And then, like, two months into its usage, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. That person is the best gift giver I've ever experienced in my life. I didn't ask for this, but this is exactly what I needed. That's the gospel. It should inspire people to go, wow, I didn't know I needed that. But once I got it, holy banana, it is awesome. I am so glad. So Paul's saying, why would I be ashamed of the gospel? The gospel is great. I get to bring the bluish gray truck wherever I go. And I don't deliver happiness, I deliver joy. Because they find salvation in Christ Jesus, and that salvation is incredible. Not only that, but he expects the gospel to work. If you go back up just a few verses, what does he say? He says, I want to come to you in Rome for what reason? that I may reap a harvest among you. He's saying there's already Christians there. There's already churches there. I know that. But guess what? If I go out and I preach the gospel, more people are going to get saved. I just expect that that's going to happen. In the same way that a a gardener knows how to get seed to grow and a baker knows how to make bread rise, Paul has had practice. He has had opportunity to share the gospel for years and years and years now. He expects... That if he goes and he shares it, people are going to get saved. Do you expect that? Is the gospel so great that you expect that people would get saved? Now, this passage in Romans it actually has a sister package, and if if the three of you taking notes would like to know this, I'll go ahead and tell you. The sister packet the passage of this particular passage in Romans is First Corinthians chapter one verses eighteen and following, and we know it's the sister passage because. Paul mentions, I am obliged both to Jew and Greek, both to Gentile and barbarian, and then he goes on to say, it's the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Now you'll know what I mean by sister passage when you get to 118 and following in 1 Corinthians. But I want to read you one verse out of 1 Corinthians that kind of explains what Paul means, that it's the power of God, even though we would think, well, you just preach it and people get saved? Well, yeah, you just preach it and people get saved. Look at 1 Corinthians. It's going to come up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Just one verse out of this passage this morning. He says, For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul's saying, you know, there could be other vehicles by which salvation could be delivered. But this is how God chose it. He chose to have his servants speak new life to people through Christ Jesus. He chose to have his servants tell others how awesome Jesus is and watch them get saved. That, that might seem like folly to us, like, well, I could never speak in eloquence, or I might look underprepared, or I don't have all the answers, or I'm not a good public speaker. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. I, I have problems, right, in communicating. But Paul is saying, if you communicate the gospel, people get saved because that's God's plan. You just have to share it. You have to share it, and you have to share it. Years ago, my wife came to me, and she says, we're done eating processed food. I'm going to start baking our bread from scratch weekly. And I'm like, all right. So she gets this whole grain, whole wheat bread or or, or flour, and and she, she puts yeast and water together, and all of a sudden it bubbles, and then the bread rises, and we have bread, and we slice it at home, and sometimes I mangle it, but we have bread at home that she's made herself. Now, I have to be honest with you, the first couple dozen times, the results were a bit uneven. Sometimes it rose, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it inflated, sometimes it deflated. Right? There was, there was variables in this. But I've watched over the course of the last 10 years, as my wife has become a master baker. She can bake things and it rises every time. Imagine that. In the same way, Paul was to the point where he had shared the gospel so many times, where he had shared the good news about Jesus so many times, he simply expected results. Not everybody gets saved, but somebody's going to get saved. It's like Mars Hill. We talked about Paul in Athens back in the spring. Some people mocked. Some people said, we're going to hear you further upon this, Paul. And some people believed. Some people believed. It's the power of God, when the people of God speak new life to people who don't yet have it. If it pleased God to create the world through the spoken word, why would it not please God to redeem the world through the spoken word? That's how God started it, and that's how he's going to redeem. But his people have to speak it. We have to have the same conviction that if we talk about Jesus, people will be changed. And it does. It changes the atmosphere in a room immediately, doesn't it? For those of you who do talk about Jesus with others, who turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations, it changes the atmosphere. Things can get very hot or very cold in a minute. But it does change the atmosphere. It changes the atmosphere. And many times it leaves people going, "We'll hear you further on this." And sometimes it leads people to belief. So Paul expects that there's going to be a harvest in Rome. He's not ashamed of the gospel because he's watched it save people over and over and over again. And, and, and just for a sidebar this morning, for just a minute, save from what? It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Save from what? What have you been saved from? That's an interesting question, right? If you were sitting reading your Bible tomorrow morning and saying your prayers and getting ready for the day, what a great question you ask yourself. What have I been saved from? What has hearing hearing about and believing in Jesus, what has it done in me? That's a fabulous question to ask ourselves. I wrote my list. Maybe you can write yours. I I wrote that it saves me from hopelessness. The gospel has saved me from wasting my life on selfish pursuits other than taking my kids to the Civil War battlefields. It saves me from ruining relationships because I can't get out of my own way. It saves me from walking through life alone and powerless. It saves me from wondering if I'm just an accident. It saves me from the ignorance and hopelessness and mathematical impossibility of believing I'm descended from an amoeba. It saves me from wasting my worship On created things rather than the Creator. It saves me from a life separated from the God who gave me breath and who loves me and designed me to be in relationship with Him. And most importantly, last and certainly not least, it saves me from an eternity separated from a God who loves me and created me to be in relationship with me. It saves me from all the things. That's what it saves from. Some of you don't know that salvation. And and that's okay, because you're going to, because the gospel works. Eventually, you're going to turn your life over to Jesus. Hang out here long enough, and it's going to happen. And you're going to experience that same level of salvation. Like, I am saved. God has protected me, graced me, looked after me to this very moment of salvation, and now he's going to save me from even more. And I fully expect that when I leave this earth, I will see Jesus, my Savior, face to face. I am saved. That's what Paul expects when he preached the gospel. That's the first greatness of the gospel. But the second thing we're going to see here is that Paul expects, and here's some Christianese for you. Get ready for it. The gospel turns hurdles into hallelujahs. It turns hurdles into hallelujahs. Now, AJ's very good at this. He, 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 he tells you all about what hallelujah means and why we still say it in church when he's playing his guitar over here. He lets us know that hallelujah means I boast in the Lord. That that I boast in God. I talk about the greatness of God. So when somebody goes, can I get a hallelujah? And you go, that's weird. It's not weird. That's not weird. We have all types of words in our language that are derived from other languages. Spaghetti. If I invited you over for spaghetti, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's weird, because that's Italian. So why in church when somebody goes, can I get a hallelujah? You're like, that's weird, because it's Hebrew. What's wrong with you? Right? It just means I boast in the Lord. God is awesome. But Paul recognizes when you preach the gospel, there's hurdles for people to get over, aren't there? They have preconceived notions that make it tough for them to come into the faith. And Paul acknowledges that here. He says that I preach the gospel, it's the power to those who believe, both to first the Jew, he says in verse 16, and then the Greek. Now, once again, I mentioned that sister passage to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 and following. And he explains why there's hurdles for both Jewish people and Greco-Roman people, just as there are hurdles to anybody that you share the gospel with today. They might look at you and say, well, Christians are intolerant. All right, no, that's a hurdle. They might look at you and go, well, my mommy or my daddy was hurt in church, so church stinks. That's a hurdle. Or I, I just believe that I am descended from a single-celled organism. Okay, that's a hurdle, Right? Those are all things that people may present to you, and there might be 400 more that, that are a hurdle, that I don't know that I can believe that, or I don't know that I want to believe that because. Paul had the same thing. So when he says first to the Jew and then to the Greek, and you read that with 1 Corinthians chapter eight, uh, 1, verse 18 and following, you find what he means. The hurdles for each culture were different. The Jews had a major hurdle in accepting the gospel that Paul was preaching because Jesus suffered now, they'd have this expectation of a Messiah that would come for 2,000 years and save them, and they expected that he would be a conqueror. He would operate in righteousness and justice. Those are the two words that always accompany, or sh- almost always accompany, messianic literature. But they expected him to conquer Rome. And instead, Jesus died on a Roman cross. That, to them, was a source of scandal. That, to them, was a hurdle. They couldn't imagine a suffering Messiah, and Paul preaches to those who would have trouble understanding and suffering Messiah, and he says, look at the Old Testament, look at Isaiah chapter 53, why wouldn't you expect the Messiah to suffer? But not only that, are you really so interested in the Messiah coming and conquering Rome, and setting up the physical boundaries of the nation of Israel again? Or would you prefer a Messiah that doesn't conquer Rome for a generation, but conquers death for all eternity? What kind of Messiah would you like? You can have a country, or you can have eternal life. Which would you prefer? Do you see how Paul took the hurdle to a hallelujah? Our boast is in the Lord to think that Jesus came in the flesh, only to... To destroy the Romans so that they would just be replaced by another violent culture a hundred years later That, that, that doesn't help anybody we need a Savior who conquers our greatest enemy and that is death and not only that but the idea that our Savior commiserates with our pain and our suffering that he understands us that he understands loss and pain and hurt and abandonment that he understands that on a human level I want a God that understands me you see the hurdle becomes a hallelujah for the Greeks they had another problem Because we preach the resurrection. And to the Greeks at this time in history, the idea was simple, body bad, spirit good. So ultimately, you want to escape your body because this thing is corrupt, this thing makes bad decisions, this thing eventually decays, we want to escape our body and then go play a harp on a cloud as a spirit. But I want to ask you for just a minute, how would you like to experience eternity? Would you like to experience eternity as a disembodied spirit floating somewhere in the ether? Or would you like to experience eternity as a human with fingers and toes that do not decay, do not suffer pain, hurt, or want? You get to experience eternity. This is the resurrection. You get to experience eternity as you've experienced life and gone, that's not right, that's not as it should be. I hate pain, I hate death, I hate suffering. What if you got to experience eternity in one of these? You don't have to have mine, you keep yours. (laughs) What if you got to experience eternity in a human body that's perfect? Wouldn't you prefer that to being a disembodied spirit? Wouldn't you like to rule and reign with God as a human and not some spirit? That's the resurrection. That's the prettiest, wonderfulest, fabulousest version of eternity that could be out there. That God would not just redeem your spirit, he'd redeem all of you. The Greek hurdle becomes a hallelujah. God wants to save all of you, don't you know? Not just part of you. See, that's the adaptability of the gospel because the gospel is God's ways and God's thoughts. It's not that we have to to make up a new doctrine in order to overcome every hurdle. All we have to do is open the Bible and pull out the doctrine that's in there to overcome the hurdle. And people begin to go, wow. Really? Oh, really? Wow. Because it's in there. There's ways for the hurdles to become hallelujahs. Well, Christians are intolerant. That is ripe for a hallelujah. Well, I got hurt in church, or my parents got hurt in church. That is ripe for a hallelujah. All we have to do is do the things that are in the word of God and speak the word of God and watch those things fall before the word of Christ. That's the greatness of the gospel. But we've saved the best for last. We, we, we've, we've established that, that, the, that the gospel can turn hurdles into hallelujahs, that the simple spoken word of the gospel, the gospel preached, is the vehicle of salvation. But, but really what Paul gets to in verse 17 is, is really what gets Paul amped up because the gospel is all about how good God is. Now you say, uh, okay, well, I know that. We sing that in church regularly, God is good. But, but he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. The good news that brings salvation is all about how good God is. Now that's an interesting statement. Because all over the world today, There are folks ascribing to religions that say, my salvation, to achieve my eternal reward, I must be good. I must be righteous. I must do all the right things according to the standards of my religion, and maybe, just maybe, I'll be deemed righteous, right before God when I die. The gospel says you are saved because God is good. Other religions say you might be saved if you are good. That's great news. Because I'm not good. I'm not. As one writer of the scripture said, my sins are ever before me. And I don't want to say to God when I die, look, God, I have filled up the scales of of salvation with my righteousness. Look at all the drops in the bucket that has led you, God, to believe that I am a good and righteous man and that I deserve an eternal reward. Look at all the drops in the bucket. Look at all the water that I have placed in in the goodness bucket. Do you see the weight and the awesomeness of me? Do you see my righteousness? Paul said, no, the gospel is that God is good and God is righteous. And salvation is not due to any of your righteousness. Salvation is only due to God's work, his mercy and his grace. That's the gospel. You want to know what makes Christianity distinctive? you want to know what makes our faith different than the faiths of the world, it is this. Salvation is based in the goodness of God, not in the goodness of humans, not in the right and righteous behavior of humans. That's why Paul says this salvation that comes from the righteousness of God, God's goodness, God's right behavior, God's mercy, God's grace, that salvation that comes from him that is so good and so great and so awesome. It comes from faith, that's his faithfulness, his goodness, his steadfast love, into or to faith. From faith into faith. God's faithfulness turns into your belief that he's good. And therefore, the righteous shall live by faith. We mentioned this last week and I'll say it to you again today. The problem that humanity has is simple. We can't turn back the clock and be sinless. In fact, I can't even turn the clock back like 36 hours and be sinless. I try not to sin on Saturdays because I'm preaching Sundays. I can't even turn the clock back that far and declare myself righteous. Can't do it. Can't do it. The only thing that we can bring to God that makes any difference is our trust. That's what was broken in us from the beginning, and that's what brings new life. We bring faith. In fact, when he says in verse 16, it is the power of God to salvation to all who believes, that's the same word for trust and faith that is three times in verse 17. Faith, trust, faith, trust, faith, trust, faith, trust. That's what we bring to the table. God, I trust you that you'll save me. God, I trust you that you'll help me. God, I trust you that you love me. God, I trust you that you'll forgive me. God, I'll trust you that you have the power to make me new. God, I trust you now. I'm done trusting me. I'm done Dripping eye drops of good, fresh water into the bucket. Fill me and overflow me with your goodness. That's the gospel. And you say, well, well, faith is something. Faith is the empty cup you bring to God asking for a drink of water. Because that's salvation. He has to pour it in. You don't participate. You just bring him the cup and say, I need you. Fill me up, Lord. That's good news. Well, I I once heard this this gospel guy, and he was on a street corner, and he asked somebody, how do you expect to get to heaven when you die? And I thought that was manipulative, because then people had to think about dying. But really, that's a good question, isn't it? How, how, How do you expect an eternal reward from God? Where does that come from? Does it come from you or does it come from him? The gospel says it comes from him through the person of Jesus Christ and all that he has done in history and for eternity on behalf of you and I. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him never will be thirsty again. It will come up in him like a spring of eternal water welling up into eternal life. That's salvation that comes from God. That's the righteousness of God, that Jesus came to provide salvation to each and every one of us. God's gospel, his salvation, is awesome. It's amazing. It ought to be studied and thought about and poured over and walked out and lived out and preached out in the lives of every single Christian. All else is minutia. All else is tangential to this. What Jesus has done to prove that God is righteous and wants to save us. How about you? I'm not asking you to become a Civil War nerd today. God bless you. But would you become a student and an adherent? and an awe-filled observer of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the point where you could talk about it with the power and the fervor of someone who not only has truly been changed by it, but wants to see others changed by it as well. That is our call. If you sit in here on a Sunday morning and we sing, Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins they are many, his mercy is more. When you sing that, do you sing it or do you sing it? Do you pass God back some meatloaf? Or do you stand in awe of just one aspect or facet of the gospel, We need to stand in awe again, folks, of what Jesus has done. We need to sing it, speak it, read it, pray it, tell it. We need to do it. It needs to be the central focus of who we are. That's how people get saved. We tell them the story of what Jesus has done with passion and with awe. And every time we focus in on the gospel for 28.5 minutes on a Sunday morning, we do eternity a great favor. Because we're putting ourselves in position to add more people to it. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. To all who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is from faith for faith. And the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, what a message. Far greater than any inscription in a monument, it is a truth inscribed upon our hearts. Oh, Lord, bring us back to the altar of our hearts today, a place where the real and emotive parts of our faith lie, where we recognize just how great your salvation is and just what an awesome God it is that we serve. I didn't plan this, but I believe it's a time for some of us to make a commitment. And the commitment is very simple, but I believe some of us need to do it. We have fallen out of awe. And we found ourselves at a loss for words when it comes to telling people about Jesus and his gospel. And we need to find the words and recapture our awe. So let me ask some of you here on June 11th, 2023, Would some of you commit this summer, not through a church program, not through a do this and you'll get a gift card, but simply because you've fallen out of awe with the gospel and at a loss for words as to what Jesus has done, would any of you commit this morning to saying in the next three months, I'm going to read the entire New Testament And I'm going to write notes. You might say, Pastor Matt, that is the most unspiritual thing you've ever asked us to do. Shouldn't we pray in the altar? No, not today. Some of us need to recapture our awe for who Jesus is, what he has done, and make notes upon the greatness of the Lord. If that strikes a chord for you and you say, you're right, Pastor Matt, I've not been in the word as I ought to be, and I come in here as cold as the other side of the pillow, I'm not hot for Christ right now. I know a way to get back to that, and it's through his word. Would anybody like to commit to that today? I'll commit with you. Great. Great. Anybody else want to commit to that today? I'll commit with you. Awesome. Anybody else today? Fabulous. Fabulous. We're going to read the words of life. We're going to become inspired by the word of God once more. The gospel of Jesus. Anyone else this morning? That's right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray over my brothers and sisters who want to find themselves in awe of your word and your gospel once more. Lord, it is inspired and will inspire. Lord, I pray that as we read the words of life, they'd come to life once more in us. And I pray, Lord, that as we see your awesomeness, that we will want to convey it with your words, with your wisdom, and the times that you have appointed. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, would you stand today? It's been good to be in the house of the Lord. You got three reasons now that the gospel is great. By the end of this Roman series, you're going to have 47 more. I counted. I didn't count. But we're going to see each and every week what's so great about it. And I hope, if the Lord should work in your life this week, that there'll be an opportunity for you to share just one aspect of what you believe with one person, because the gospel is great. God bless you.